Welcome to Yard and Design, a podcast on educating professionals and beginners alike on relevant topics in agriculture, food policy, and food systems. My name is Samantha Varla, and I'm a Master of Environmental Studies candidate concentrating in urban landscape design at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we're going to be discussing the romanticism of small farming. I want to start with an article by Lisa Held, published in December 2019, titled, Two New Films Paint Starkly Different Pictures of Farming in America. The description of the article notes, Biggest Little Farm and Farmsteaders both showcase hardworking farmers on the land and raise questions about economic realities. I want to read a small excerpt from the article which notes, It was a Thursday, and Nolan, referring to Celeste Nolan, was off the farm delivering cheese. It's one of her many recurring farm tasks, some of which are depicted in Farmsteaders, an intimate documentary that aired as part of PBS's Point of View series in September. In the film, viewers watch her wheel a standard blue and white picnic cooler into a restaurant kitchen in Columbus with small children in tow. By turning the lens on the daily grind of farm life, filmmaker Shana Mallett chronicles the challenges of supporting a family on a small, grass-based dairy farm in rural America. The article continues by noting, It's one of a recent spate of documentaries about farm life, including The Biggest Little Farm, which made its theatrical release in May. That film depicts a pair of young farmers who appear to be living in one version of the dream world, Nolan describes, albeit one with plenty of serious challenges, like snail infestations, chicken-eating foxes, and wildfires. The Los Angeles Times reported that the farm employs a staff of 60, sees long lines of customers at its farm stand, and sells a dozen eggs for $15. The feel-good film has also been doing well in the box office, with current domestic sales at more than $4 million. Both films tell stories of young couples who are motivated to farm, at least in part by a desire to embrace traditional agrarian ideals, stewarding and improving the land, caring for animals, and raising children in touch with nature. But the discrepancy between the economic realities depicted in these two films is stark. And while farmsteaders made the financial strain of farming a central character, Biggest Little Farm made no mention of economics, focusing instead on how regenerative agriculture practices can fit into solving the climate crisis. Now, that was the end of the excerpt, which I think was really important to give some background information on these films and also to contrast um, just how different a narrative can be pushed depending on the documentary or the piece of information that you're um, viewing or reading. So there are a few things I want to address here. Uh, One of them being question documentaries and any piece of work, because as you see in the case of these two films, very different narratives are being pushed. I hear all the time from people, you have to, you know, watch this documentary. It's just amazing. And when you watch it, it's very one-sided. You know, you have to look at both sides of the argument and it probably falls somewhere in between. Um, as most things do, nothing is really black and white, it's usually gray, but educate yourself on the other side. Even if you personally don't believe in it, still educate yourself on it, still expose yourself to it, because it'll allow you to develop, uh, develop these critical thinking skills to at least understand the positive and negative consequences associated with both. Um, The other thing I want to comment here is that not everything is amazing, perfect, or better just because it's a small farm. There are so many struggles with small farming, and you can consider this with the disparity in farm subsidies that they receive compared to main industrial farms. Of course, this makes sense because they're probably not producing as much, um, but still there is a massive gap in distribution. Um, I discuss more about these subsidies in the episode on food policy that explores the farm bill. 
Now, from my background, I always heard that farming was a very labor-intensive and honorable profession, but one that certainly brought hardship. There are a lot of negative stereotypes around farming, and it's one of the reasons that a lot of younger people, especially if they do not come from a farming background, are not interested in pursuing. Um, one of them being that they also do not have basic health care. So this is one of the few professions that still does not offer basic health care. Usually workers are incredibly underpaid. There is a lot of abuse um, that goes on in these systems. Of course, this is not the case for every farm, but these are issues that have been acknowledged within the field. Um, and yet it seems like not that much has been done to help these people. So that's just something that I want to comment because as a younger person, when I ask people, you know, would you ever be interested in farming? It's not seen as this really wonderful career or profession to go into. It's not valued. And I really find that um, honestly surprising because without our farm workers, we would not be able to eat. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Farming is essential. It's certainly um, an essential position and it's the same as teaching, right? So I remember in one of my uh, undergraduate classes, I had a professor that asked the class, what is more valuable in our society, a neurosurgeon or a teacher? And the majority of the class was like, well, neurosurgeon, because they go through years of schooling to specialize in something. And then that's, you know, their profession. And so, you know, anyone can be a teacher, but not, any, you know, anyone can be a neurosurgeon. And he commented back by saying, how many people really need, you know, surgery um, versus how many people need to be taught? And I, that's something that's always stuck with me and a lesson that I kind of wanted to share because I think of it the same way with farming. And it's not to say that neurosurgeons are not valuable. Certainly they are um, an incredibly valuable part of our society as well, but so are teachers and yet they're not viewed that way inherently. And a lot of people don't really think that and that's really unfortunate. And it's the same with farmers. Like people usually have this negative stereotype around farm workers and it's so unfortunate because they are such an essential part of our society society. Um, certainly I was thrown those stereotypes as well when I worked in that field and I was working directly in um, an agricultural system. People would tell me all the time, you know, well, you just work in this garden. Why are you even going to school? What's the point? It's not like this is um, you know, the typical phrase, it's not like it's rocket science. So what are you doing? You know, you're not going to make money and it's just not valuable. There's no point. And that's really disheartening, but, um, certainly the work I was doing, I did because I absolutely loved it. And for some people, um, that's just something that they have to do. There is no other option because you have to provide for yourself or for your family as well. But I think it's something that absolutely the narrative around farm worker, farm workers and farming really needs to change because um, there's absolutely no reason for those stereotypes to be placed on the people that help uphold our society and feed us, certainly. So um, it also com uh, comments here that, you know, some people really think small, fam small family farming is the perfect antidote to industrial farming, um, and they don't know or acknowledge the reality of what it means to be a small family farmer. I would love to hear the narrative that others heard about farming growing up, and depending on where you grew up and your background, I'm sure this is different. Um, some people just think that, you know, we need to shut down industrial, you know, farming and go to small family farming and it's just going to be wonderful and that's what they heard growing up or that's what they believe now, but not everyone has that narrative. 
So I also want to talk about um, the same kind of rose-colored uh, picture that is painted with regenerative practices, at least from that economic standpoint. A lot of people that support regenerative farming practices are not transparent about the costs associated with it. Nothing is so simple, and so you surely cannot compare a small farm using regenerative practices to an industrial farm model. But if you were to apply all the principles of regenerative farming at a large scale, the amount of labor that it would require is certainly more. Now, I do not think that regenerative agriculture is meant to be large scale. I think inherently it's meant to be applied at a more small scale and local level. But this doesn't mean that no aspect of regenerative agriculture um, should be applied. Because I do think if you introduced a guild, and again, that's when you have two or more plants that offer each other um, mutualistic you know benefits it would help to sequester nitrogen and carbon from the atmosphere and serve as a sink back into the soil which would naturally reduce the cost of purchasing fertilizers and it would certainly pose less of a health risk to workers now on the flip side of this those additional crops even if they're two additional crops are going to require some more labor and that's just a different type of input there's always going to be something required you just have to consider what the best option is or at least what you value more and that's why learning to examine the system around you and think critically about them as well as using data or analytics to support the argument is important. We could discuss all day um, about these things. So if, you know, we get rid of the industrial model and we move to this regenerative model, well, here's, you know, the flip side and here's the flip side to that. I mean, it's just a cycle no matter which way you look at it. That's why reconsidering the model that we have right now for agriculture is really difficult. Still something to think about, of course, and to challenge. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean you need to blindly follow it or support it, but it's a very complex issue. And I think that when people talk about this regenerative um, model and they just have this narrative that if you don't practice regenerative farming and if you don't adopt it, you're just lazy or you just um, don't care about the environment, I think it's really ignorant because it is really complex. There are so many issues that go into it, so many positive and negative consequences. And so you really just have to consider the best of both models and do some data analysis on this as well. Not that data should guide all of our decisions either, but it's certainly something that can help in decision making. So that's just something that I kind of want to leave with with everyone today. Now, the second article I want to discuss today is titled, I tried to prove that small family farms are the future. I couldn't do it. And it was written by Sarah Mock in October of 2021. Now, I really like this article because it investigates the romanticism of small farms and it provides a lot of examples of struggling farms and the reality of this business. One quote that really stuck out to me is, the myth of the noble independent grower keeps this nation from acknowledging that farming is simply a profession and small farmers pay the price. So Mott continues by saying, in fact, in 2016, I landed a book deal on the topic, promising to explore why small family farms were at risk and what could be done to protect them. Having grown up on a small family farm myself, I was certain that they were not only the future of our food system, but also the best and most virtuous way to organize agriculture. Now, another excellent point that Mott comments is, today, small and family are potent antidotes to corporate, industrial, and factory. All those evils of commerce that in our guts we believe should be kept far away from our land, water, air, animals, and food. 
I certainly would agree that this is the case and it sheds a light onto a big problem that we have when we discuss agriculture. People are proponents for the extremes and they fail to realize that neither is a perfect model or a sustainable way to feed our population. Regenerative farming alone and having small-scale localized farming, although it's ideal, it's certainly not realistic and it would not be able to feed the global population. So it's certainly not, um, it's not a better model, at least when you consider that. So when people say that we need to completely transform our agriculture systems to be only small family farms, um, which by the way, just because something uh, is a small family farm, it doesn't mean that it's inherently regenerative or that that family is adopting a regenerative agriculture model, which is another misconception that I think a lot of people have when they talk about small family farms. Um, but as well, they fail to realize that it would require a complete transformation of our social system too. It's really ignorant, I think, to say, let's do a complete overhaul, and this is what's going to be best for the environment without considering the economic and social sector of sustainability too. Industrial agriculture has its place, as do small family farms and regenerative farms, but every system has positive and negative consequences. And that's what I want people to understand. Mock also notes in the article, I set out on a quest to study as many farms as I could. I got to know a 16th generational generation conventional grain farmer in Virginia, a third generation citrus grower in the Southwest, and a diversified produce grower turned uh, cider distiller in Minnesota, just to name a few. She continues by saying each of these farms was financially stable in their own way, but at the same time, none of them looked or acted the way the ideal small family farm is supposed to look or act. The Virginia farm was family-owned and operated, but large-scale and extractive, harvesting thousands of acres of wood, corn, soybeans, and cattle for anonymous global commodity markets. The southwestern farm was going broke, growing fruit in the desert, in part for love of farming, but mostly to retain millions in family uh, land wealth and avoid a sizable tax burden. The Minnesota farm offered stellar biodiversity and trendy products, and it became an agritourism destination during the pandemic, but all of that was made possible by the independent wealth of the two farmer owners. On the other side of the ledger, I'd amassed a long list of farms that look the part of the small family dream farm. They grew fresh produce for local markets, hustled their butts off while loving their outdoor-centric life, and wondered, with no small measure of despair, how they would ever have a family or grow old working 80 hours a week. Without fail, every one of them was struggling to get by. As a matter of fact, more than one of them went out of business before I turned in my first draft. Uh, and that was the end of the excerpt. So hopefully this sheds some light on the subject and it helps you realize that small family farms can endure a lot of hardship and saying that we need to eliminate industrial farms completely can also cause small farmers to pay the price. Part of the price as well um, being that some farms are handed down to people so they might be starting in a better position than others because the transparency of economics and the transparency of hardship sometimes with farming is what is kept uh, hidden and I think that's again something I really want to reveal because a lot of people um, you know want to get into farming and they just aren't provided with that type of transparency and so I think when they enter that space it becomes it becomes a lot more overwhelming than it needs to be. Um, and so I'm not saying this um, 
you know, that yes, industrial farms are wonderful. We don't need to challenge the model. Uh, certainly companies like Monsanto contribute to the demise of small farms as well. So that's not it. Um, but if you're wanting to eliminate these farms, it also puts the workload onto someone else. And uh, that type of economic model may not be sustainable for these small farms. So every, of course, every situation, every farm is different, but you have to consider all of the consequences and not just speak from what you think the world should look like but realize what it does look like and then think from a realistic point of view, not a really ideal point of view. Another quote from Mock that especially resonated with me is something that Nate Story commented to her saying, we live in a country that has romanticized small family farms a great deal and has made the highest and best form of agriculture this small family farm. It's actually pretty unique to the United States. When you go across the rest of the world, people don't have the same kind of romantic notions. Further on it, it's written, uh, and I'm quoting, In the last half millennia, European and Euro-American farmers in North America have been the beneficiaries of incredible transfers of public wealth. First and foremost, these farmers were given hundreds of millions of acres of free or nearly free land, largely stolen from dispossessed indigenous people and other people of color. These transfers didn't happen once or twice, but have continued for centuries right through today. Early colonial land grants came from European monarchs, but between the Revolutionary War and the 1900s, many times more conquered lands were given away to almost exclusively white homesteaders in the wake of a litany of wars and genocides across a century. Then came moves like the Dawes Act of 1887 and the California Alien Land Act of 1913, which systemically dispossessed indigenous and Asian-descended peoples respectively, uh, and resulted in cheap land becoming available for white family farms. Today, black farmers in particular continue to be dispossessed due to legal ambigu ambiguities like heirs' property. And then, to work past those vast expanses, Euro-American farmers, who were often land-rich but too cash-poor to pay workers and obtain the skills needed to farm profitably, were provided free or nearly free labor from enslaved peoples, children, and Asian and Latinx Im uh, migrants. Even today, between the abuse-plagued H-2A agricultural worker program and the extensive carve-outs for agriculture and labor laws, agriculture continues to employ some of the poorest and least protected workers in America. Certainly, that is all true, and it is imperative that we understand the history behind agriculture as well, because there is a lot of bloodshed and abuse um, that has happened generationally, and again, it still continues today. Um, so the H-2A um, Temporary Agricultural Program is, uh, it allows agricultural employers who anticipate a shortage of domestic workers to bring non-immigrant foreign workers to the U.S. to perform agricultural labor or services of a temporary or seasonal nature, and that is defined by the U.S. Department of Labor. So I just want to comment on that if you uh, were not sure what that is. Now, I think this is a great article. It really discusses the other side that some are already aware of, but for some it's a reality they may not realize or they just may not want to address because they want to push that narrative of one thing being bad and the other being great. And I really feel that it's a personal responsibility to shed light on this because when you are sharing information, you should discuss the positive and negative consequences of both sides and options, despite what you may support personally. From personal experience, I also find that some people, especially those that have actually never worked in agriculture themselves, will push regenerative farming or small family farming and never want to relay the hardship that accompanies this. I think some people do this because they feel that if they expose those challenges, people won't want to do it. 
but I think it's worse to expect people to be successful by blinding them to this reality. And then when they get involved, they realize, I wish I knew this before so that I could have better prepared myself. It's not to discourage people at all from starting their own farm or working as a farmer. Because again, I certainly feel it is one of the most honorable professions, but I want people to also know both sides. It is a profession that is embedded in inequity, and it certainly does not offer uh, basic protections to the workers. So it is really difficult to get people involved into farming. Having worked at a half acre regenerative food forest, I can speak from years of experience that it is incredibly laborious work. We had a handful of part-time student workers and we worked for very little pay, about $10 an hour. Part of this being, I think that we were student workers through the university, um, and that is still so much more than what other people work for in this profession. So $10 an hour to someone is so much because there's so much uh, worker abuse. Some people get paid pennies um, per pound or even per bucket of food. So you also have to consider that, you know, like $10, although uh, certainly it is very little, it's still so much compared to what others are being paid. Now we did it because we loved it. We were certainly part of a community that gave us so much and we were able to give so much back, but it was really difficult work, uh, not only physically, but emotionally too. We didn't have a, st a stable financial fund, so we had to get really creative and work with the community to keep things running. For example, we would sheet mulch, which is a method where you put newspaper onto the soil. Ideally, this is after you've picked those undesired or opportunistic plants. Uh, that's what other people call weeds. I try to put a more positive spin on it. And you lay down that newspaper and then you cover it with a layer of mulch. That is so there's a second barrier and it will also uh, require a lot less mulch on top, which is great. Now the newspaper would come from the university, uh, in this case, Florida Gulf Coast University or FGCU, and it would be soy-based ink. That's something that we were really careful about because you don't want chemicals to leach into the soil, which directly houses your crops. Now for sheet mulching, usually the mulch part would be rabbit hay and manure, which is awesome because rabbit manure doesn't smell opposed to other animal manure. And it also does not have the potential of transmitting pathogens to humans, unlike other types such as that from cattle and sheep. And so using this mulch um, would be great because it was also donated from Jennifer Macbeth. She is the co-founder of the Southwest Florida House Rabbit Rescue and conveniently served as an instructor at FGCU in the Department of Marine and Ecological Sciences. She was um, fabulous in supporting the food forest personally and academically as well by incorporating it as a service learning activity for her students. So she would drop it off on site and it was a great way for us to connect with the community and offer them something that was also mutually beneficial to us. So something that we would do as well is gather wood pa uh, pallets that were being thrown out around campus. We would make those pallets into tables for our hoop house, which was kind of our nursery. And then we would um, use this as a really low cost way to create tables because the pallets were free. And then we could buy concrete blocks from the small money that we did have. Um, and so the cost was significantly reduced than if you're buying brand new materials uh, or even used materials like tables are expensive. So usually we would be very reliant on grants and scholarships and funding like that. 
And so you're hearing now just a few of the things um, that we did, but I'm sure you can hear how much work and creativity had to go into it, as well as the community partnerships that were developed, because without the community, so much of what we did would not have been possible. And this is also what's really important about these systems, is that there's a massive social component to it. And that's why it's really um, important to understand that sustainability goes far beyond the environment. Certainly, the economic sector needs to be considered as well well as the social sector because different agricultural models usually emphasize different sectors based on their objectives. And if there is one thing you take away from today's episode, I want it to be the ability to think critically about these systems and use those same skills when reading or watching something because I am confident that there's always something more to the story than what you are being told. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode helped further educate you on this topic and provide a reliable source of information to question quick headlines and participate in respectful discourse on a subject that affects us all. Until next time, Yardners.